Our dear Heavenly Father, please open our eyes and our hearts uh, to the wonder of your word. May your word do its work in each one of our hearts today. We trust you for it. We are eager to see what you will accomplish today in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the message of our uh, sermon today is, Who are we and how should we then live from 1 Peter chapter 2? I'm going to be focusing primarily on verses 9 through 11. It's page 981 in your pew Bibles if, uh, if you want to be, be looking at those this morning. But we live in a world where people are groping around for answers, don't we? Uh, they've discovered that the world and all of its philosophies cannot adequately answer the questions such as, who am I and why am I here? People wander aimlessly from one philosophy to another, from one podcast or Twitter feed to another, uh, each search ultimately resulting in emptiness and futility. I just read an article the other day about a former atheist who had become a Christian. And she said, atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? It's kind of an important question, isn't it? So where do we go to find the answer to these questions? And for us, the questions, who are we and how should we then live? Well, we go to the Word of God, don't we? We go to the Bible to find the answers to these questions. In God's Word, we discover who we are. We discover who we can be in Christ and then we also discover how should we then live as the followers of Jesus. And so the two questions, again, we're going to find the answers to in 1 Peter chapter 2, at least in part, are who are we? And then how should we then live in light of who we are, especially as we enter into a new year of 2024? Now in the book of Romans, as you may recall, we discovered that when a person individually hears the gospel and responds to the good news in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, they are justified by faith. Remember that? Meaning that their sins have been forgiven and the perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited or imputed to them. All of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord have been justified by faith. That is who we are as individual believers. But then, having become a believer, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, thus we become part of the people of God. And interestingly, most of the New Testament letters address us not individually, but corporately as the people of God or as the church. And so what we find here in 1 Peter 2 is Peter answering the questions, who are we and then how should we then live? Now in those verses that Jeff read so well for us, Peter actually describes who we are as the new covenant people of God using similar language to how God's old covenant people were described back in the Old Testament. And so we begin here in verse 9 in answering our first question, who are we? And we find out, first of all, that we are a chosen people. That's exactly what Peter says here. But you are a chosen people. Now, the Greek word for that word chosen is the word eklektos. 
and it means to elect or to pick out from amongst a group. And Peter is encouraging the believers he's writing to by telling them, first of all, that they had been chosen unto salvation by their loving Heavenly Father. And these believers really needed this encouragement. We read of the recipients of this letter back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 here of 1 Peter. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And so this letter that we're looking at this morning was being circulated amongst persecuted and scattered believers throughout a group of provinces in what was known at that time as Asia Minor. We know it today as modern-day Turkey. We could even call these people refugees, and we've certainly heard a lot about that here in the last several years. And again, Peter's encouraging them by reminding them that they are chosen. And we can all appreciate how nice it is to be chosen by somebody for something significant, Those of us who were married, what a blessing it was when our husband or wife chose to uh, receive us as, as their lifelong partner in marriage. What a blessing it was to be chosen uh, by my wife uh, to, that she would spend the rest of, of her life with me. Maybe back in grade school, you remember uh, that you, when, when you would choose teams on the playground and you'd be stang, standing in a line and there'd be two captains be playing softball or, or, or baseball or soccer or whatever. And so the captains would choose people to be on their team. And what a relief it was when the captain finally chose you to be on their team. And so how much more should we be thankful that we in the church are a chosen people of God. And that just as God chose the children of Israel to be his old covenant people. In fact, Peter borrows Old Testament language in describing us. We see that if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. And there we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. We're going to see that in a minute. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So just as God chose the children of Israel as his old covenant people, he has chosen us, the church, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, as his new covenant people. It's who we are. And then, secondly, Peter says we are a holy nation. So if you skip down a little bit there in verse 9, he says, but you are a holy nation. And again, Israel was described in the same way back in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, notice the similarities here with 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. We're going to see that in a minute. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so just as God called Old Testament Israel a holy nation, 
That is how Peter describes the church here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Now to be holy means that we are to be set apart or consecrated unto the Lord. And in one sense, we were set apart unto the Lord at the time of our salvation. When we were justified by faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness was credited to us. And so now we stand before God as holy, perfectly righteous, set apart unto him. And so in that sense, we are the holy people of God. But even though we are positionally holy before God, we are actually commanded by him to live holy lives, both as individual Christians and corporately as the church. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, that's Peter's emphasis here. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So, what, is it, what does it look like for us to be holy in all that we do? Well, definitely not in some of the ways that Old Testament Israel was called to be holy. Uh, in the Old Testament, God instituted a complex system of civil, ceremonial, and dietary laws uh, that the children of Israel were to obey. But why? Why did God command them, for example, to eat certain foods while abstaining from other foods? And why did God command Israel to obey the Sabbath laws as to what and how much they were allowed to do on the Sabbath and not to do? Well, the answer to that is that God chose them and set them apart as a holy nation from all of the nations around them. And so they were to be distinct and different from the pagan nations all around them. And so that's why he instituted these Old Testament ceremonial, civil, uh, and dietary laws. But again, what does that look like for us in the church here uh, in the 21st century? Well, first of all, uh, we are to obey the moral commands of Scripture like Old Testament Israel was called to do. We are to obey the moral commands of Scripture regardless of how out of step with the culture we might look. And I think that's something very important that we need to emphasize and to ingrain in our hearts and our minds that we are called to obey the commandments of Scripture regardless of how out of step with the culture we might look. Let's look at just one example. We could look at all kinds of things. But let's look at the example of a, of a young man and a, a young lady um, who are dating and uh, perhaps they feel they're falling in love and they are tempted to commit sexual immorality and maybe even move in together before they're married. After all, so many couples, young and old, they're doing it. It must be okay, right? Well, the answer to that is wrong. <laughs> Absolutely not. Sex outside of marriage is called fornication and is forbidden by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know? that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, Paul writes, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will inherit the kingdom of God. And so to be holy, 
or set apart in the example that we're looking at is to not engage in sexual immorality, to remain pure, and to not move in together until after that couple is married. But when we compromise and when we conform to the standards of our culture rather than the word of God as individual Christians and as corporately as the church, we cease to be holy. We cease to be set apart unto the Lord in that particular area. And so that would be an instance where this young couple, if they profess to be Christians, they would need to repent if they had fallen into sin and they would need to seek the Lord's forgiveness. And of course, we have the wonderful promise in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so one way we exhibit that we are holy and set apart unto the Lord is to obey the moral commands of Scripture regardless of how out of step with the culture we might look. We need to be bold in in our obedience. We need to be faithful to the Lord, totally faithful unto him. But we can also demonstrate that we are a holy nation by demonstrating the love of God to a hurting world. In this way, too, we are set apart from the world and unto the Lord. You know, we're to respond to people's sufferings as believers and as the church We're to respond to people's sufferings in a totally different way than people in the world often do. You know, we're to show hospitality to strangers. We're to take care of orphans and widows. We find all of these things in Scripture. We're to to take care of the marginalized of society, uh, the lonely, the homeless, the hungry. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're called to love our enemies. Well, that's not something... You see in the world, do you? We're called to forgive those who wrong us. In that way, again, we are, we are set apart as holy unto the Lord. Richard Wormbrand, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs, uh, spent well over a decade in prison under two different regimes. First, uh, a Nazi regime and then the communists. Well over a decade in prison, and he was daily tortured in unspeakably horrific ways. And yet, the Lord placed a love in the heart of Richard Wormbrand for those guards who tortured him every day. He forgave them. He loved them. He expressed love to them. He shared the gospel with them. And over the course of time, several of those guards eventually became believers in Christ. And so that is definitely a way in which we are set apart wholly unto the Lord from what the world would normally uh, respond in, in a certain way. In other words, our selfless love demonstrates that we are different, that we are set apart, and that we are holy. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 16. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that is who we are. We are a holy nation as the church, as the people of God set apart unto the Lord. Well, Peter also describes us here as the people of God, as God's special possession. He chose us, he set us apart unto himself, and so now we belong to him. 
Just as God described the people of Israel in Exodus 19 as his treasured possession, which we read a minute ago, Peter now describes the church in the same way. As God's new covenant people, we belong to him. We belong to the Lord. Peter emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Do you know that as a believer in Jesus, you are not your own anymore? You are no longer the captain of your own ship. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is the captain of your ship. And the price that we were purchased with was the precious blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. We can have assurance that our salvation is secure because of who we belong to. We belong to him. We belong to the Lord. Jesus made this evident in John chapter 10. Gospel of John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep, that's all of us who are in Christ, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So who are we as the people of God? We are chosen. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. And then we see here in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2 that God in his grace called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. As I thought about this contrast between darkness and light, and it, is there a greater contrast than that? I thought about those people in the world who live in places where they don't see sunshine for weeks or even a couple of months. Can you imagine what it must be like to live in a part of the world like northern Norway where the sun does not rise above the horizon in some places for several weeks? That'd be awful for many of us, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, we, we love sunshine. You know, we love summer when the sun is, is out till 9 o'clock at night. But that would be very, very difficult. But then think of the feeling of seeing the sun rise above the horizon for the first time in two months. Boy, I would, I'd be right out there right away in the morning waiting for that sun to rise above the horizon. Think of the elation. Think of the joy. Think of the praise to God that Christians would have uh, when they see the sun rise above the horizon for the first time in a couple of months. Well, as the people of God who have been saved through faith in Christ and have become a part of the body of, the, of Christ, the church, we have been called out of spiritual darkness into God's wonderful, marvelous, spiritual light. From the darkness of sin and the darkness of unbelief into the light of salvation, into the light of forgiveness and joy and peace and truth. This should prompt far greater elation and joy and praise to God than even that of the people of northern Norway who see the sun slowly emerge above the horizon for the first time in two months. In Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, 
that we often hear around Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, and that light is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Many of you, like me, remember the spiritual darkness you were once engulfed in. But now, as the people of God, we have been called into a kingdom of wonderful, marvelous light. So that is who we are as the people of God. We are chosen. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. And we've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, in light of that, pardon the pun, how should we then live as the people of God moving into a new year? First of all, we answer that question by saying we should live by declaring the praises of God. That's what it says here in our passage in verse 9. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The Lord says in Isaiah 43:21 of the children of Israel, the people I form for myself that they may proclaim my praises. And in the same way, God has formed us as his new covenant people for the same purpose to declare or proclaim his praises. Remember the words from what is my favorite Christmas hymn, O Holy Night? I think it's the third stanza. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Considering who we are and what he has done for us, how could we not proclaim his praises? We actually set ourselves apart as holy by publicly praising God for things that the world takes credit for or simply takes for granted. You know, someone might say to you, if God blesses you in some way in your life, someone might say to you, you are so lucky that that happened to you. Well, luck has nothing to do with it. There's no such thing as luck. As a follower of Jesus, we acknowledge the Lord for his blessings. We give him thanks. We praise him even publicly. Even as we're talking with somebody, we say, yeah, that was the Lord's blessing. The Lord did that in my life. I'm so thankful to the Lord. And in doing that, we actually set ourselves apart as holy and uh, we give glory to God. But the primary way we declare his praises is through our proclamation of the gospel. It says in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, He is your God. And remember what the angels said to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. We have the greatest of news to proclaim. A risen Savior who is willing to save all who come to him in repentance and faith. We heard this joyful message proclaimed by Dan on Christmas Eve. And how this world desperately needs to hear this good news. The good news of the gospel. So let's commit 
in the coming year to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light in worship and then in gospel witness. And then secondly, in answering the question, how should we then live? Let's commit to hungering for God's word in the new year, for a fresh passion for the word of God in our lives as his people. If you go back to earlier in chapter 2 of 1 Peter to verses 2 and 3, it says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good in salvation? Crave hunger for the pure milk of the word of God that you might grow thereby. We all know how strongly a baby needs and desires to be fed, right? They, they make it abundantly clear when they're hungry. They make it abundantly clear when they want to be fed. But in the same way, we need the nourishment of God's word as our spiritual food, and we need it every single day as the followers of Jesus. There is no shortcut to spiritual growth in our lives as Christians. There's no snap of the finger thing where all of a sudden you become a mature believer in Jesus Christ. It takes time. It's a process. Daily seeking the Lord in his word. Daily seeking the Lord in prayer. Abiding in him. Uh, enjoying fellowship with the people of God. Joining together in worship with us. That is what we need to do in order to progressively grow in our lives as Christians. There is no miraculous shortcut to it. And as pastors, it is our responsibility to feed you with the milk and the meat of God's word. But you need to nourish yourselves every day as well. Now, you might be saying to yourself as I say that, well, I don't always do that. I don't have a real hunger for God's word. I haven't been very consistent in being in the word and in prayer day by day. I wish I had more of a passion for God's word. Well, one thing we need to ask ourselves, and I have to ask myself this at times, is am I taking in so much of the world through television and social media and all the various ways in which information comes at us? Am I taking in so much of that that I have lost my appetite for God's word? John Piper said, Endless nibbling at the table of the world dulls our appetite for God. Isn't that true? Endless nibbling. That's what so many of us do. You know, we're constantly nibbling on the things of the world and we progressively lose our appetite for God and his word. I think that that quote applies to so many of us. So perhaps we need to, take, we need to stop taking in so much of what this world has to offer and pray that God would fuel a passion in our hearts for his holy word. We can pray to God for that. We can ask the Lord, Lord, please give me a greater passion for your word. And then commit to reading it and studying it. You know, if you go to a place like Psalm 119, which I think is 150 some verses, 
It's divided up into sections. And every single part of Psalm 119 helps fuel a passion for God's word in your life. As followers of Jesus, we need the milk of God's word that we would grow and mature as his disciples. And Dan mentioned our Bible reading plan, the 2024 Bible reading plan that's available out at the Welcome Center. That would be an excellent resource for you to provide some structure in in reading God's word here in the coming year. And then... As God's beloved children, as we see here in verse 11, we are to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Look with me at 1 Peter 2.11. Peter writes, Dear friends, or beloved, that might be translated, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter reminds his readers who they are. They are foreigners. They are exiles. These people had been scattered, driven from their homes, persecuted, which is why Peter emphasized in verse 9 that they are God's beloved, chosen, special possession. We in the American church have not yet had to suffer in this way. We don't suffer a lot of persecution. We're not driven from our homes and things like that. But that doesn't negate the fact that we too are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and that we, like these first century believers, are foreigners and exiles in this world as well. As citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom, we, according to William Barclay, are like a man who was away from home in a strange land and whose thoughts ever turned home. We might liken ourselves to a soldier who for months and even years has been away from home and away from family in a foreign land, but his thoughts are ever turned home. He longs for home. Warm feelings of home fill his heart and his mind. Christmas songs like I'll Be Home for Christmas can really tug at our hearts as we think of a brave soldier who longs to be home for Christmas. Well, is that how you think of your life in this world as a Christian? Longing for our eternal home and to be in the presence of our Lord? Or does this world and its endless temptations and distractions occupy too much of our life and too much of our heart? I think we need to say that for too many American Christians, we are much too comfortable in this world, living as if this were home to us, this world. William Barclay said the Christian must never become so entangled in the world that he cannot escape from its grip. And we need to hear carefully John's words. If you flip ahead a few pages to John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John writes here, this is so clear. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
So John says here we must not love the world, but what does he mean by that? He's not talking about the world of God's creation. He's not talking about the Rocky Mountains and the Grand Canyon and the beautiful rivers, lakes, and oceans that we all love, God's physical creation. He's not talking about that. And he's not talking about the world of people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But he's talking about this world system. This system of political, economic, educational, uh, entertainment. This, this whole realm of the world system which stands in opposition to God and which hated Jesus so much that it crucified him. So let's commit in the coming year to really see heaven as our true home, that we would long for our eternal home, and that we would long for the return of our Lord Jesus, and as a result, that our love for this world would slowly fade away. And then, finally, Peter says again here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, he says that we must abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Many of Peter's readers were Gentiles whose lives before they came to Christ were saturated with every kind of sin and impurity. It was, it was really pagan. The pagan world at that time, there was all kinds of immorality, all kinds of sin, and people's lives were absolutely immersed in it. But now, having been chosen and having become God's holy, beloved people, they were to abstain from those fleshly desires, to keep themselves from them, because they wage war against our souls. Just as the world is our enemy, and just as the devil is the enemy of God's people, so are our fleshly desires or lusts. They wage war against us. They literally oppose us and create this great disturbance in our souls. Now what specifically are fleshly desires or lusts? Well, if you would look, for example, at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, you see it up there on the screen, you see a list of the fleshly lusts or desires that we are to abstain from. These are the things that wage war against our souls. And notice it's not just sexual immorality. And so we must abstain from these things. So Christian, do you sense the battle going on within you? Did you realize that in coming to Christ that you were entering a spiritual war zone? As we hear about wars and rumors of wars in this world, it is this battle that we must win as the followers of Jesus. Even though our sinful desires can be very strong, we must abstain. We must abstain or keep ourselves from them through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and he gives you the ability to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against our souls. In this country, I don't need to tell you, in this country, sensuality and temptation are everywhere. They're like spiritual minds in a spiritual minefield. Our fleshly lusts are again our spiritual enemies. So don't Coddle your lusts, don't feed your lusts, but starve them. 
put them to death. That's what the Bible calls us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And replace those ungodly desires with a greater passion and a greater affection, which would be Jesus Christ and his word and his eternal kingdom. Well, hopefully these verses in 1 Peter have enabled us to better understand who we are as the people of God and then how we are to live in light of who we are, especially as we enter into a new year. And you know, we need to remind ourselves all the time how privileged we are beyond measure to have been chosen by God to be his own special people, having been called out of spiritual darkness into his glorious, eternal kingdom of light. So again, let's commit as we move into this new year to live as obedient citizens of our heavenly kingdom, as children of God and bearing the family resemblance as being part of the family of God, which is holiness. Holiness is the family resemblance. God is holy. He calls us to be holy. And then we need to replace the feeble desires that we have in this world with a far greater passion, a far greater affection, that again being Jesus Christ. Love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Well, brothers and sisters, having focused on us, the people of God, the church, in our message here today, we now enter into our time of communion, where we, as the church, as the people of God, lovingly and reverently remember our Lord Jesus Christ's suffering and death on our behalf. So we come to the Lord's table. I'll just remind you of a few things that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed and arrested, we partake first of all of bread, which represents our Lord's broken body, the incredible suffering that he endured on our behalf. And then we partake of the cup or of juice, which represents the shed blood of our Lord Jesus, which he poured out as payment for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. All of you who know Jesus Christ here this morning, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to be a member of Crossview. And parents, if you have believing children uh, who, who uh, you believe are followers of Jesus, we leave it up to you as to whether they should partake of the Lord's Supper or not. But if you're not a believer here this morning, maybe you're here for the first time, maybe you've been coming for a while, if you're not a believer, we would strongly urge you to not partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance that Jesus gave to the church, intended for the church, and so we would really strongly ask you to refrain from partaking, but this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you, if you don't know Jesus, to come to him and receive him as your Savior and Lord. So as we come to the time of partaking together of, of uh, communion, uh, let's take a couple of minutes before we do that to quietly go before the Lord, to meditate upon Him, to confess any unconfessed sin, and to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table. Let's, let's take a few minutes to do that.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for this holy time, this time where we remember the suffering and death of your Son, who you, in love, sent into this world. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly came into this world as a man, as a servant to men, and then you humbled yourself even to the point of going to the cross. The intense suffering you endured, you went to the cross, you were crucified, you shed your blood as a once-for-all payment for the sins of all who will ever believe in you. We praise you this morning, Lord Jesus. We honor you and we love you as we now enter into this time of communion. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The simple act of partaking of bread and juice we have proclaimed the Lord's death and we will do so until he returns. Well, would you stand with me then as we close our service by singing the doxology? And we begin. Praise God from... mercy and blessing be upon you all as individuals and upon Crossview Church here as we enter into the new year. So God bless you all and, and Happy New Year. <laughs>